spring is almost here, and I get, I don't know about you guys, when, when it's almost summertime, I start to get super nostalgic about like summers growing up. And one of the things, this is, this is a true story, one of the things I get most nostalgic about is mopeds. Like if you asked me, like some of the greatest times in my life, I would absolutely tell you like riding mopeds. And so this is what happened to me this week is there were guys that came over to my house and Christian rode up on a moped. And it, guys, it was the exact same model that I had when I was 14. And I just got hyped and was like, dude, can I ride your moped? And he said yes. And it like made my week. And I hopped on that thing and I went full throttle and maxed out at like 30. Because big dudes are always the one riding mopeds. Like, it's awesome that me and you are the ones that love mopeds, man. Like, uh... Yeah, anyway, we're just big dudes. It's fine. It, you, yeah, anyway, okay, I'm done. I'm back. I'm back. Uh, so the reason I love mopeds is because it was like straight freedom, right? So we would have like races on the highway, and I would always win because my moped was technically classified as a motorcycle, but I knew the lady at the courthouse, and I talked her into letting me ride it anyway, even though I was only 14, and we'd, we'd all ride our mopeds over to the lake. There was this lake close to the small town where I grew up. And we'd go to the Viking, which was this ice cream shop, and grab ice cream and sit on the dock and, like, talk life. And I loved it. And, and I got into this, like, young and free phase in my life. And I remember right around that time, like, starting to think about adults and how they lived, and I just got really annoyed by it. I was just like you guys are lame. Like, I, I watched too many, like, church league softball games and saw too many minivans, and I just was like, you guys don't know how to live. And so we would have these conversations about, like, we're going to live like this forever. We're, it's going to be awesome. Like, our lives are going to be amazing. We're going to be free. We're not going to fall into these ruts of, like, these old people. And, and here's the deal. As college students, you guys are still a little bit in your mo- moped phase of life. Like, you are, hopefully, literally, because mopeds are amazing, well done, Christian, but also figuratively, like, you guys have these awesomely naive and optimistic dreams about what life is and about what your life is going to be, and you're a little angsty towards adults or people that are lame, and I love it, I love it, and it's great. But here, here's the problem with that is it violates one of, like, my life rules about expectations, okay? So here's the deal. The movie Black Panther is amazing. It's so good, like, cool message. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. But here's the deal. The first half of that movie was ruined for me. You know why? Because you guys ruined it. Because you set my expectations so high. Like, so many of you told me that this movie was going to be amazing. And so I got to the theater, like, thinking I was going to have this transcendent experience, like this out-of-body experience. And then I realized, like, this is just a movie. It's a really good movie. And I, like, flipped that switch and started to enjoy it. But, guys, key to happiness in life, low expectations. Remember that. (laughs) Write it down. Okay? Just, if you want your life to go great, just expect nothing to go well. And then when you get what you expected, it's like, I'm fine with this. And then anything that's better than that, you're like, this is awesome. Okay? Key to happiness in life, low expectations. Um... Here's the thing, Romans 8, it rep, it, it's going to reset your expectations of what the Christian life is. 
Romans 8 resets your expectations of what the Christian life is. And hopefully it's going to play a little bit at that, that thing in you that says that life should be amazing and it should be significant. It should be everything that I've dreamed that it would be. But it's also going to lower your expectations in a really healthy way because this is what Romans 8 has to say about what the Christian life is. The Christian life is suffering pretty consistently for the rest of your life. I know that's a little bit of a buzzkill. I'm just trying to be honest with you about what I'm seeing in the text. And I actually think there's a ton of hope in that. But here's the thing. A lot of you, you're so optimistic about life. And I'm telling you, life is going to punch you in the mouth. And it's going to hurt. Like you live long enough and you will find out that this place is not what it was supposed to be. It's not everything that you've dreamed it will be. And there's this tension between seeing the beauty and the potential of life and then actually living life and figuring out the, that the world's not actually like that. It's not everything that it should be. And living as a Christian is not learning how to get out of the suffering and how to get out of kind of the letdowns of life. It's about learning to patiently live with hope as you walk through that suffering. Look at Romans 8, verse 19 with me. If you have your Bibles, open them up, or if you have a, a Bible app on your phone, it'd be great to, to follow along with me. Romans 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The creation was subjected to futility, Okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean that, that creation, that everything exists, was subjected to futility? Here's what it means. It was subjected to meaninglessness. Like if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, think Ecclesiastes. Like meaningless meaninglessness. That's what futility means. So why is there meaninglessness in this world? Well, we have to go back to the beginning. So in the beginning, looking back at the book of Genesis, if you're in theology of the gospel, we've talked a little bit about this. In the beginning, God creates, right? And it's this unbelievably amazing thing. God speaks and, and galaxies pop into existence in an explosion of light and energy. And, but the pinnacle of all in the universe is formed and atoms collide to form planets and stars. But the pinnacle of all of that, everything amazing that he makes is you. It's us. We're the pinnacle of his creation. And here's why. Because we're made in his image and we're given a purpose unlike anything else in creation. Here's what God says to us as soon as he makes us. He says, here's the deal. I want to have relationship with you and I want you to represent me to the world. So he, he like makes his like shiny new car, his new creation car, and then he tosses us the keys to it. And he says, have fun. And talk about purpose for your life. God says, I want to know you, I want to have relationship with you, and I want you to demonstrate my character to the world. That's the purpose that we were born for. That's what we have in our hearts. That's what we're looking for. But it's not the purpose that we wanted because we wanted to be in control. We didn't want him to be in control. And so this is what we did with the keys to his shiny new creation. This is what happened at the fall when we sinned is we took those keys and we tossed them to Satan and we said, have fun. 
We submitted to the authority of evil instead of the authority of good, and Satan and sin and death has been wreaking havoc on this place ever since. And so now the world's not what it was supposed to be, and you're not what you were supposed to be. And so that's why we suffer. And look at the description of what Christians should do with that information. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Jesus looks at us and he says, hey, I know that this life is hard and I want you to trust me. I want you to wait for me with patience. And the primary way that you will prove the legitimacy of your faith The primary way that you will prove the legitimacy of your faith is not what you say, it's not how many church services you show up at, it's not how long you hang around, it's whether you will suffer and if you'll endure, if you'll keep going, if you'll keep following Jesus. Suffering is the litmus litmus test for true faith. Okay, so that's suffering. But now I want to talk about hope. That's the Christian life, the the tension, the balance between suffering and hope. And and I want to give you three ways from this text that you can have hope no matter what happens in your life. Okay, so, so these are the things that you have to believe in order to live the Christian life for the long term. Why can you have hope in suffering? One, because all bad things turn out for good. Because all bad things turn out for good, too. The good things can't be taken away from you. And three, the best is yet to come. All bad things turn out for good. The good things can't be taken away from you. And the best is yet to come. So that's where I want to go. So when I was thinking about this, I, I remember this thing we did. At, I, was, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago. And you guys ever go to conferences where they make you do like icebreaker, maybe not conferences, but things where they make you do icebreakers or mandatory fun. I hate mandatory fun. Like I love fun, but I hate it when other people try and get me to have fun. Guys, I have a confession. I hate board games. I hate them. And I know as Christians, you are like, what? Because Christians love board games. And you all are trying to convince me to love them, which makes me hate them more. Because you're trying to force me to have fun. I don't want to have fun when you want me to have fun. I want to have fun when I want to have fun. Okay, don't give me mandatory fun. But this was, uh, this was a mandatory fun that I have to admit, or it was like more like an icebreaker that was actually really helpful to me. So this is, this is the thing that we did. They had us do peaks and valleys, this thing called peaks and valleys. And what it is is you write down your peaks, the, the three kind of best, most important points in your life, and then you write down your valleys, the three like worst and hardest points in your life. And so I wrote those down and then I was looking at it and thinking about it and I realized that my valleys, like some of the hardest stuff that I've ever been through actually could also be my peaks. Like every single one of them actually ended up being one of the best things that I've ever experienced in my life, even though it was one of the hardest things that I've ever gone through. And so I want to talk to you about why that is, that God can take all bad things and turn them for good. And I actually kind of, as we go through these points of hope, I, I just want to tell you a little bit about my story. Like I want to, so I, I've, I've, I've been struggling this week prepping for Romans 8, 
And here's why. It's not because it's not amazing. It's because, like, do you ever have something that you love so much and then someone tries to get you to explain why you love it to them and you, like, can't do it justice? I feel like that with Romans 8. And so instead of trying to get super creative, I just want to tell you my story of how this has changed my life. And so kind of throughout the next section, I'll give you all three of my valleys, but how God has been faithful to use them. So the first one, all bad turns out for good. This is Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who have been called according to his purpose. So that's a, that's a famous verse, right? But the question is like, what does, that, what does that actually mean? What do we actually mean by that as Christians? Have you ever had someone in your life that is just too much of a morning person? Like, you roll out of bed and you feel like you got hit by a bus and your breath could kill a small animal and you don't want to be alive. And then that morning person walks in and is like, hey, how's it going? Good morning. And it's like, I want to kill you. Like, I don't do it, but that's what you want in that moment, right? Okay, that's what Christians are like with this verse, and I hate it. This is what we do with Romans 8.28. People are suffering. They're going through stuff that's actually jacked up, that's really hard, that Jesus never intended for them to walk through. And then us Christians come in and go, hey, God works for the good of those who love you. You've been called according to your purpose. Have fun. Everything's fine. And it's like, ugh, I hate that. I hate that. Because essentially what you're saying is there's a silver lining, right? Like, if you're suffering now, it's because God's going to give you something even better than that. And to a degree, that's true. But in another way, that's completely not true. And here's what that does is it trivializes suffering. It, it, it treats people like, hey, you're suffering, but it's really not that big of a deal. When Christians are supposed to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, we're supposed to enter into real suffering with people. And so what does Romans 8.28 mean? We have to look at it in context, all right? So we got to look at it with verse 29. So I'm going to read both of those together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who have been called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, to be conformed to the image of his son. So I just dropped a couple big words there. Some of you know that they're controversial. Some of you don't even know that. Don't worry about it, Okay. We're going to talk about some of that next week, but that's not what this verse is primarily about, so just let that go. I want you to focus in on this idea. Verse 29 starts with a small but really important word, the word for. And the way that word for functions is it connects verse 29 with verse 28. So don't miss this. This is, this is significant. This is important. Verse 29 is explaining what the good that God promises us is. And when you hear that God works out everything for good, your temptation will be to assume your definition of good, what makes you happy, the things that you want in life. But in 29, we get a look at what actual good life is. The good that God is going to work out in your life is that he's going to conform you into the image of his son. He's going to make you look like Jesus. And that's actually the best thing he could offer you. And if suffering can conform you into the image of Jesus, then it's worth it. It's worth it. Now, when a lot of you think about what it means to be conformed into the image of Jesus, 
to, to have sort of spiritual experiences, your temptation is going to be to think about all the high points. You're going to think about the retreats. You're going to think about the spring conference. You're going to think about that great connection group or that decision you made. If you went to Tennessee, you're going to think about the mountaintop experience where we literally went on top of a mountain and built a fire and worshiped Jesus. You're going to have that stuff in your brain, right? <clears throat> but it's usually the best conforming happens when you suffer. And it kind of sucks, but it's so worth it. So, so I was talking to Drew Stevenson, our pastor, about um, this this week, and he encouraged me to just be honest with you about my story and about what this has looked like in my life, all right? So some of you have heard kind of bits and pieces of this, but let me fill in the gaps a little bit. So I've always been an uber performer, right? I've always wanted to be impressive for other people in my life, for, for God, for whoever, but then I got to college, I got in Salt Company, people started confessing sin and talking about the worst stuff they had ever done. I got freaked out, thought they were weird, but I really liked it. And so I hung around and I learned what it meant to just be honest. And so I started confessing stuff that I never thought I would tell another human being and I grew like crazy. And then I jumped on staff uh, after I graduated and it was a good year in a lot of ways. It was a bad year. I did some dumb stuff. Like, I had a lot of fun, but I did some dumb stuff. I had a dude swallow a live goldfish at a ministry event because I thought it would be funny, and it was. It was hilarious, but bad idea. Uh, yep, won't do that again. Won't make any of you do that. But made some mistakes, right? And one of the biggest mistakes that I made is that I started thinking that I had to perform, that I had to be impressive. And I was working with all these people that I had always looked up to and I didn't want to admit that I was kind of struggling. And so this is what was going on in my life as I was working crazy hours, trying to be a, a good worker, trying to be impressive. And I started to struggle personally and I fell back into some depression and some anxiety that I'd struggled with in the past. And that led to falling into some old sin habits and I ended up looking at pornography which is not something you're supposed to do as a pastor. Shouldn't do that as anyone, but it's particularly weird to be the pastor that does that, right? And I was sick of being that guy that screwed stuff up, and so I didn't tell anyone. And when you fight sin in the dark, you lose. And it became a, a trend in my life, and, it, and I just tanked. I got more and more unhealthy because I felt the guilt and the weight of that until the Holy Spirit got me and I eventually ended up telling my boss, telling the leaders of our church, and then I had to go home to tell my wife, Jessamy. And if you don't think that sin is a big deal, or maybe you specifically don't think that sin is a big deal, tell someone that you love about it when it hurts them. It's a big deal. And, and Romans 8 talks about the, the groaning under the weight of sin sitting across from the person I love most in the world and telling her about the hurt that I had caused her was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And she was great and forgave me almost immediately, but it, it, it broke some trust in our relationship. And so almost overnight, I went from having my dream job being admired and respected by a lot of the people in my life, marriage going super well, to... <clears throat> they ended up making the right decision that I, I needed to just be off staff to get healthy. So to not having my dream job, having tension and a lack of trust 
in my marriage and it felt terrible. And, and here's why I waited so long to get to that point is because I knew in my heart that that's what's gonna, that, that was what was going to happen. And I chose to not be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that I wouldn't have to suffer, right? So that I wouldn't have to walk through that. I kept it inside, and I just chose to kind of put off my relationship with Jesus until finally he pursued me and broke me down, and I got the suffering that I had coming. But guess what? I also got conformity to the image of Jesus. I I ended up working a a job as a paraeducator in a behavior dysfunction room. So I rolled into that with no idea what I was doing and like no training. But if you give those kids like the slightest hint that you don't know what you're talking about, like they're going to mess you up. And so I just acted confident. But the first day, some kid threatened to throw a chair at my head. And I was like, I'm not sure what to do with this. And there was this kid named Zach that like would have these, these boredom outbursts. He would just get bored in class and all of a sudden he'd just go and he would just start yelling. And that just meant that he was bored, and I was supposed to deal with that. And I didn't know what to do with Zach, and I would hand him pencils to do his homework, and he would just snap them and throw them at me, and then I'd be, try and be patient. I'd hand him another pencil, he'd snap it and throw it at me. And it's like, dude, I want to snap you, like, but you can't threaten students. That's not something you should do as a teacher, and it was a hard year. But here's what happened in that year is I learned how to love those kids. And you know what? No one was watching me. I wasn't on a stage. No one was impressed with me. And I learned how to love people because they're people. And Jesus taught me the type of love and service that he has towards people, including me, that are just constantly rejecting him. And you know what else I learned? That he didn't abandon me. That he walked with me through that pain. And that everybody in my life actually walked through that with me. I was conformed to the image of Jesus. And I remember I left that school with these notes from all these kids that essentially just said, hey, we haven't had people that have like loved us. And so thanks for just being in our lives. You know what that suffering was? Worth it. And I'm a different person now because I walked through that. I wish I would have admitted to it sooner. I want to ask you, are you willing to suffer Are you willing to be honest about who you are so that you can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Is it actually worth it to you? Because if it's not, you're not going to make it in Christianity in the long term. And that's okay, but let's call that what it is. But if it is worth it to you, then suffer. And God will use it for your good. It's worth it. He uses all things for good. Second, Good things, namely knowing Christ, can't be taken from you. It's the second reason we can have hope. Look, guys, if you, if you put your hope in anything that's circumstantial, then your joy is going to be circumstantial. If you, if you put your hope in a career, in a girl, in success, in family, in, in whatever, then your joy is going to be constantly up and down. You're never going to be solid and consistent because even if you get what you want, you're constantly going to be worried that you're about to lose it. But if you understand the redefinition of goodness, that the good life is knowing Jesus and being like him, then you'll know that you can lose anything, but that God is still going to be good to you because you can never be separated from him. There's nothing that's strong enough to separate you from Jesus Christ. Here's why. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Okay, just stop there real quick. 
God gave up his son for you, is there anything good that he wouldn't give you if he would give you his son? If he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? If it's God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I remember kind of in that hard time, that hard stretch, asking Jessamy if she still loved me. I was being a little dramatic. And she was like, yeah, of course I love you. But it wasn't like romantic and cheesy, like she's a truth speaker. So it was more like, she didn't say this, but it was more like, yes, I love you, you idiot. Like, of course I love you. Like what you do is not in any way related to my love for you. And I feel like that's what God is like. That, that no matter what happens in your life, no matter who accuses you, whether it's your friends or your family or whether it's Satan or whether it's you, no matter who accuses you, God is like, of course I love you. Why would I not love you? I remember this, this time in a, in a middle school basketball game, I, I took a forearm straight to the face and somehow I got called for the foul and I got up and I was ready to argue with that ref, but I heard some weird sound from the bleachers and I looked up and my dad had made some sort of a bear sound and was not happy. My dad it was 6'5", 295 pounds, and that dude was running down the bleachers and literally ran onto the court and yelled at the ref for me. And he got kicked out, I think. But it was awesome because he was defending me. And I feel like that's a little bit what God is like in this passage. He's a little bit like, hey, who wants to challenge me? Who wants to condemn my kid? Because you got to get through me first. God's defending you. He's for you. He's on your side. And if that's true, what possibly could separate you from his love? And what circumstance could you possibly walk through that would, that would take that away from you? His love is better. It's better than any pain that you'll walk through in suffering. Verse 37, know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. It's like he's just trying to think of stuff to throw out there. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Name something that you're afraid of. Right now, go in your head. Name something that you're afraid of. I'm afraid of failing at my job and letting people down. Name something that you're afraid of. It's not strong enough to keep you from him. His love is relentless, and it's more powerful than that thing. But here's the deal. I think some of you have self-induced suffering because you don't believe that promise that nothing in the past and nothing in the future can separate you from the love of God, and so you live your life in anxiety and in stress because you don't believe that his love is all that you need. And that was me. So that's my second valley, was actually the stretch before coming up here. I knew that it was going to be great. I, I believed in it the whole way, but it was just hard. We had just bought a house. Like, our stuff was literally still packed up when we decided to move. Uh, we were leaving, like, everyone that we had known for essentially the last decade. I, I, was, I was freaking out about, I, I don't know how to plan a church. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know what jobs Jessamy is going to have. I don't know how we're going to find community. I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know what my job is going to be like. 
And in the middle of getting caught up in the anxiety of the moment and forgetting that God is protecting my past and my future, I missed what God wanted to offer me, which was his goodness. The reason God told me to come here is because he wanted to give me this. Like, look at this. I never could have dreamed this and how much this has meant to my life. And God wanted to hand me that. But I was too distracted by my anxiety in the moment. Here's what I want you to see. Real joy is not the absence of pain. It's the presence of God. Real joy is not the absence of pain. It's the presence of God. You don't need to fix your circumstances. You need to figure out how to believe that Jesus loves you relentlessly in every circumstance. The third way to have hope, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Do you know how offensive that would have been to the original readers of this text? So this book was, was written to the believers in Rome. The believers in Rome, when they were meeting to talk about stuff like this, they were meeting behind locked doors with whispered voices because the emperor at the time was rounding up Christians and burning them alive. They're thinking about this as the doors might be busted down and they might be murdered. And this is what Paul says, the suffering that you're going through, it's nothing. It's nothing in comparison to the goodness that's coming. Guys, I've been confused by Drew's suffering. So, and I don't want to overplay this card, but it's just on my mind. It's on his mind. It's a part of the life of our church right now. Uh, so if you're new to Salt Company, our head pastor, Drew Stevenson, his newborn baby is in the hospital with a heart defect, has been for a while, and they're not sure if he'll be able to make it or not. And I don't understand it. Like, I don't know why it's happening. I also don't understand how they're getting through it. I, I don't know how they get out of bed in the morning. I, I don't know how they take care of five other kids while they're trying to love their newborn baby in a hospital. I got to meet Jude the other day for the first time. And, and I don't understand what it's like to try and comfort a suffering human that you can't communicate with. I don't understand it. But statements like this, that it's not even worth comparing with the goodness that's coming to us, they don't minimize that suffering. They maximize the glory that's to come. They don't minimize the suffering. They maximize the glory. I don't understand why they're walking through that, but here's what I do know is the amount of pain that Drew and Melissa are feeling right now is hilariously insignificant in comparison to what it will be like to be with Jesus for eternity. That when they finally get to see Jesus, they're going to be confused by how ridiculously good eternity is. Like, that you and I don't even have the capacity to understand the goodness that God's going to dump on us in heaven. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Jesus is going to make everything new. He's going to raise this world, this creation to life. And the best moments here will not even compare with the, with the worst moments there. And all of creation is waiting for that day, but specifically, it's waiting for the day that you will be revealed as God's kid. What does that mean? Romans 8 talks about adoption. Um, Drew and Melissa adopted a couple kids from the Congo. And they, they went zero to four kids. Because Melissa got pregnant with twins, and then Drew left for the Congo to get two more kids. And it's an insane story. I'll have him tell you that uh, sometime. But one of the weird things about adoption that they went through is that at some point, those kids... You, you fall in love with them even though they're not totally yours yet. And then at some point they become legally yours, but they're, you're still separated from them. So Drew's kids were in Africa, but they were his kids. That's our situation. Legally, if you've trusted Jesus, you are a child of God. But you're on two different continents. You're still separated from him. And we live in the tension of waiting for him to come get us. And we wait to see him come and make us fully his kids when we can be together. And here's the thing. I don't know what that's like to go through that. And I'm sure the orphans and orphanages, they're waiting for their parents to come pick them up. It's brutal waiting, right? But I doubt that there's a single orphan out there that when their dad walks through the door that's thinking about how hard the pain has been. You know what they're thinking about? That they finally get to go home. That they finally get to be with their dad and they're just running to him. The joy of the moment overwhelms the pain of the past. That's what it's gonna be like someday for us. The final valley in my life, some of you, you know this, my dad got sick when I was in, in high school. He had cancer, and I, I got so mad about that and, like, tried to walk away from God. I investigated atheism and other religions, but my dad just, like, grew in his faith, and, he, and he, the dude was just, like, full of hope. It, I remember this one time in particular that he, like, could hardly talk, but I walked in the room, and he had this dumb little grin on his face, and I couldn't, I, I tried to ask him what was going on and he wouldn't tell me or whatever. And then my mom walked in the room and he lifted up the covers and he pulled out a ring. And somehow he had like done research on rings and had paid someone to pick it up and they snuck it into the hospital and he surprised my mom with a ring just for the heck of it. In the middle of suffering, he wasn't even thinking about himself because he had hope for eternity that made him last through the pain. And I looked at that and I said, that's something that I don't have. And here was my prayer in that moment. Jesus, heal my dad. Heal him. And this is what Jesus said, said to that prayer. He said, no. And my dad passed away. But was that because he stopped being good to me? 
It's because he had a better, different prayer that he wanted to answer that I never would have thought to ask him. And it was this prayer, Jesus, save me. The night that my dad died was the night that Jesus saved me. And I can look back now on the worst night of my life and say it's the greatest blessing that I've ever received because now I know Jesus and he's better than anything else. And in a way, he also answered my prayer because my dad is with him in heaven with a healed body waiting for me to join him. That's the hope of knowing Jesus. He will ask you to do hard things, but he's good. Will you trust him? Let me pray. Jesus, you've been so good to me throughout my entire life. Through the peaks, through the valleys, through everything, you, you, you've been relentless in being good to me, and, and that's what you do for us. And there's people in here, Jesus, that don't get that. They don't trust you. They, they don't understand what it's like to believe that you have their best in mind, that you know better for them. And I pray that right now you would speak to them by your spirit, that you would help them understand that you want what's best for them and that a hard life will be worth it. And, and God, I, I want us to be a ministry that isn't just about throwing a cool event. I want us to be a ministry that honors you and that sticks with you through life. I want these guys to follow you when they're 50, when they're 90, not just right now. And so help them to be ready to walk through suffering because you're worth it, Jesus. Help them to believe that. Help me to believe that. Help us to believe that you're worth it. We love you. Amen.